Hello and welcome to another architecture podcast. I'm George Bradley, an architect and a director of London-based studio Bradley van der Straten. In each episode, I talk to a different architect from around the world to discuss an inspiring house that they have designed. In this episode, I'm joined by the architect Matt Loder of Loder Monteith Architects. We talk about their latest project, the Maker's House. Located in a small town just outside of Glasgow in Scotland, the home is designed for an architect and a ceramicist and is an extension to a Victorian villa that had previously been subdivided into flats. As designers themselves, the project was a close collaboration between client and architect and has resulted in a beautiful design that manages to sharply contrast a new form with the old building. Lodemonteith have created a single-storey, sloping roof addition to the classically proportioned house that creates a new spacious, open-plan living area with vaulted ceilings, as well as ancillary spaces, including a ceramic workshop. In the interview, I talked to Matt about the challenges of working in a conservation area and how they carefully balanced their attention between the new and the restoration aspects of the design. We also discuss how they designed the building to be able to be separated into two separate dwellings, ready for downsizing in the future. Some people like to look at pictures of the project before listening and others prefer to listen first. Whichever way round you like to do it, pictures of this project and links to the architect can be found on the episode page at anotherarchitecturepodcast.com. I hope you enjoy listening. Hello, Matt, and welcome to another Architecture Podcast. Hi, George. Nice to be here. Thank you very much for inviting us. Yeah, well, thank you for taking the time and, and coming on and to talk about um, one of your more recent projects, The Maker's House, today. Um, where I wanted to start was, because um, I've read that the, the home is designed for the clients that are both trained as architects. One's a ceramicist, but both trained as architects. That's right. Um, and I always find that interesting when architects approach other architects to design their house. So maybe if you could tell me a little bit about them and why they chose to work with another architect to do their home. Yeah, ab- ab- absolutely no problem. Um, so our clients, uh, Gordon and Janice, uh, met while both studying architecture at uh, the MAC in Glasgow. Um, and uh, as you've already said, Janice went off to become a ceramicist and makes these very beautiful pieces of sculpture. Uh, Gordon uh, moved abroad and became a designer and now runs a a practice uh, that are based in a a few places around the world, but the majority of their work is in uh, the Far East and the Middle East. And um, I think ultimately, uh, like most good designers, uh, he's aware of his shortcomings as well as his uh, strengths. And uh, he's good at designing cities in China and not house extensions in a Glasgow suburb. And so he Mm -hmm. didn't have hands-on relevant experience to the Scottish building regulations and the complexities of uh, obtaining planning permission in a conservation area, et cetera, et cetera. So he really wanted somebody to partner with him. Uh, And uh, I think with all clients, there's always an element of collaboration, but with Gordon and Janice, because they know what they're talking about and they know what they're doing, that was just more so in this instance. So it's not, it wasn't radically different from a normal project of ours, mm-hmm. I would say. But um, but that was why they wanted an architect on board was really to get through the vagaries of of the statutory systems. Um, yeah. 
And did that apply pressure, though, like right from the start of think like an element of feeling like you've got to prove yourself in any way? No, I, I, I wouldn't say so. Uh, we, we know that they they interviewed a few architects. So we had already been chosen um, and it had been chosen on the back of work that they had seen that we had done already. Um, and uh, the, the other thing that is definitely worth saying is it isn't the first time that we've worked for another architect. Right. <laughs> so uh, we, we, we've actually done it quite a few times that we work for architects and landscape architects and quantity surveyors uh, over over the last mm-hmm. few years. Um, so so we we already we when we went and met them and talked about the project, it was really in that spirit of collaboration and trying to find an arena where we could share ideas without us feeling like we were being judged by them or vice versa, that actually that out mm-hmm. of it would come a common thread. And and looking at the finished project project, there's no doubt I can see large bits of Lode Monteith and large bits of the project which we wouldn't have done that way had it not been for them and it's not to say that it that it's worse it's a richer project and it's more mm-hmm. diverse for that spirit of collaboration and it's a it's a very enjoyable process yeah that'd be great to sort of delve into some of those details and yeah. kind of understand where those influences came from further in the interview but maybe for a little bit of context if we start with because you're, you're working to uh, an existing house here yes um and we're in um an area just called Lindsay, just outside of glasgow right that's right um and this yeah this existing it's a it's a villa freestanding villa in some what looks like beautiful grounds um what's the story behind the existing house how did the clients sort of come by this yeah i I think it's probably worth talking a little bit about um, just just very briefly the history of, of Glasgow. Um, so Glasgow is is synonymous with with shipbuilding. Uh, it's the reason why there is a city here. So uh, the Victorians dug out the River Clyde to allow there to be a, um, a, a, a the ability to make very big ships a long way inland uh, and uh, and right in the middle of a city. Now what that did was it polluted a lot of the air. In, in the city and so as merchants were making a huge amount of money from shipbuilding they moved out to the suburbs and built these very big stone houses away from the smell <laughs> effectively yeah. and so you have around Glasgow uh, these these suburbs that have popped up with very very big very generous villas uh, and Lenzi is one of those um, Gordon and Janice actually lived in a subdivided villa next door to it. And so they acquired uh, the two properties, the villa uh, that is our project, that is the maker's house, had been divided into two flats. And they separately acquired both of those flats as they came onto the market. Um, so that was how they were aware of it, was their right. close proximity to it. But um, but but um, they, they didn't get it all in one go. It was, it was done... Uh, quite subtly i suppose mm. over a, over a period of some time so they must have had their eye on this as a long-term plan then to be buying these two apartments what do you think's special about this this place what made them want to sort of do that long-term planning yeah it's so it's very secluded um because of the nature of uh, gordon's work in particular he works in edinburgh but he flies a lot over the over the world so uh, Lenzi's very well connected to both Edinburgh and Glasgow via train, via public transport, and it's close to both airports. It's, um, uh, so, so from, from a, a work point of view, it's not living in a city, but it's very well connected to both of them. Um, it, it is also a beautiful part of the world. So it's a conservation area for a very good reason. 
Um, it's a very leafy suburb surrounded by um, uh, the, the Capsi Fells, so the hills to the north of, of, of the town. Uh, they have a dog. Uh, their son uh, attends a school nearby. Uh, so it, it, it is very much, I think, their, their home now as, as a place. And, and this provided them with the opportunity, I think, to scratch an itch as much as anything in terms of building their own home and, and shaping yeah. it to be what they wanted it to be. So what was what were your first impressions then when you were getting this brief and seeing this existing house? What were the things that was... Did you have sort of things that were coming immediately to mind? Y- yeah. Uh, so, so, well, there, there's two things to say. One is that um, I thought that they were asking for a really big house. <laughs> so it was the biggest project that we had worked on, um, a domestic-scale project at, at, at that stage. Um but as we started to unpick the reason why they were asking for a big house, it became clear it was to allow uh, the property to be subdivided and to be future-proofed uh, so that they could live on uh, one floor into the future and sell off a part of the property going forward. Mm-hmm. So, and, and, and by starting to plan at an early stage for that potential subdivision, um, it, it allowed them to, I think, free the financial reins a little bit knowing that they would be able to recoup more of the cost by planning for this subdivision at some point down the lane, uh, da- sorry, down the line. Um, mm-hmm. and, 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 and so that, um, that, that will, from, from a briefing point of view, that was my initial impression, but that became obvious. Um, the original house wasn't in great condition. It was a bit of a hole really. And a lot of the, uh, the original features had disappeared. So, um, and, and front and center among those, was the original staircases um, that had been taken away and uh, and really insensitively removed, frankly. Mm. Um, but but out of those constraints actually come opportunity. Um, a, a, as a practice, we tend to have a, an attitude that every project is as good as you're going to make it. And and so when you do have these uh, constraints and issues, that presents an opportunity to do something exciting and dynamic and new and uh, and mm-hmm. that was very much how we took took that on um and and the other thing to say is because it wasn't a particularly precious house it meant that we could start to explore how we uh, decarbonize it as much as possible um that while there was decorative cornice work and, and 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 plastering it wasn't everywhere and that meant that it provided us some opportunities which otherwise wouldn't have existed to introduce insulation and to really tighten up the thermal envelope of the building. Mm-hmm. So there were, like being in a conservation area, there were certain constraints that you're, you must have yeah. been working with here. Am I guessing that then most of these were external? They were to do with the sort of massing and the volume of the building internally. It was kind of almost free reign. Is that the case? Yeah. Um, so within... So it's Eastern Bartonshire is, 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 is where this um, uh, property is. Um, the, the presumption generally is in favour of planning. So if you're talking about a margin, marginal call, uh, presumption should always fall in favour of development. The opposite is true in a conservation area. Um, mm-hmm. And and so the, the, uh, the presumption falls away from development. That being said, I would say as a practice, we're not we're not overwhelmingly domestic in nature. I would say that the thing that binds our projects together is that they are difficult. It's not that they're houses or, or, or it's, it's that they're all difficult. So um, the overwhelming majority of our projects are either uh, building in green belts, 
work to existing listed buildings or work in conservation areas. And that probably mm -hmm. constitutes about 80% of our work as a practice. So this is a pretty, it's a, um, a, a, a typology that we're pretty well versed in. And we mm -hmm. know the hoops that we need to get through in order to obtain uh, planning approval. Um, yeah. So. And so this one, what was, what was difficult? That's a good question. Um, <laughs> It, 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 probably not planning uh, is 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 the answer. I think uh, the thing that made this one difficult. There, so there, dif things happened during the construction, which we'll maybe go into in a bit more detail. Um, uh, the contractor going bust uh, was was a big one, and then also the 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 nature of the pandemic, uh, mm. uh, sort of catching the tail of it, uh, definitely has an impact. And but but I wouldn't say that the planning of it. Uh, and, and getting through the kind of the statutory consents was the complex thing. Um, we, as, again, we, we tend to like to try and deal with planners as human beings and understand mm -hmm. the psychology of, of their position that nobody likes to be seen as a hurdle. Nobody wants to be seen <laughs> as just this thing that you have to get over. Uh, you know, what, you know, what's the purpose of planning is, is presumably to, to, to make sure that there's appropriate development and good design. And therefore, the way to, to deal with that is to consult with them at an early stage and do a pre-app. Um, so I, I put a slight health warning on pre-app that it's the easiest thing for a planner in the world to say no when mm. the advice is given without prejudice. But, but by and large, they want to see good development and they want to help you find a way to shape appropriate development. And if you can construct an argument, uh, which is exactly what we do on all of our projects that will do a, a major site analysis on what makes, in this instance, Lensi conservation area, Lensi conservation area, what typifies it, what characterizes it. And, and you start to design around that level of understanding. Uh, it's very difficult for planners to argue with that. <laughs> so, and that was exactly what we did. You know, so we did a big site analysis. We started to produce some proposals, and we then went and did pre-application with the planners. Um, mm -hmm. There were a couple of very minor things that they that they picked up on to do with roof profiles of the extension, but but that apart, planning went really without a hitch. It was it was a very straightforward affair. Yeah. So so from a design point of view, then it, I mean, in principle, we've got what I'm presuming is the original Victorian villa that's the square form plan, mm. pitched roof, two stories. Yeah. And then we've got the new buildings on the side that very much kind of juxtapose, very much contrast with that. Yeah. There's, there's elements that pick up, but you've got a new building that's housing the more kind of open plan facilities of the kind of modern living and kitchen and, and lounge. Um, can you, I'm really interested to sort of understand that process of where these ideas germinated, how you got to what we now see um, for the house and okay. how they combine with maybe some of those challenges you're facing and the brief you got from from the clients as well yeah what we well what we started by doing was we, we tend to look at historical maps of of the area um, and what it shows is that a lot of these old villas have a collection of outbuildings that are single story in scale uh, that include uh, like stables or mm -hmm. uh, um, uh, I mean, it is particularly stables and outbuildings. Um, and, and so when you start to understand that, that there is a prevailing typology of a two or three storey villa with a series of single storey buildings generally grouped around the back and the side of the building away from the primary facade, that then starts to exp 
describe a, uh, a, a, an architectural strategy that may be appropriate for that area. And that was that, I, that is ultimately what's been what's been delivered on site. So the quest the question uh, that we asked uh, of this one was 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 there any development historically? And there did used to be a stables block running along the back of the uh, uh, the back uh, the northwestern corner of the site. So that's the mm-hmm. but behind the extension as you see it from the front. Um, yep. So once that was a, a given. We then started to explore how matting may exist on the to, to the rear and to the side of the development that that uh, captured that single story nature of the sort of the the secondary architecture, if you call it that. On mm-hmm. on the site, you get the primary uh, villas and then the secondary support architecture, and that was what this uh, extension and um, garage was effectively to become and workshop as well um, was was a piece of the secondary architecture that typifies the building typology throughout the the conservation area. And were you kind of playing with forms and testing different ideas to to reach these forms that you've got the kind of pyramidish shape? Exactly that. Uh, That uh, that was the so the pyramidish shape of the roof roof sorry the roof was uh, the one concession that we made to the planners that actually what we had wanted to do was to allow there to be a solid gable that allowed a chimney to come up through it and the planners for all they I think quite liked that said well what we want you to do is to uh, I'm going to use a music analogy to riff off the main house a little bit more is there a way of making a pyramidal roof within the proposal and and we went away and looked at that and that is what's been delivered so it there is an echo of the original building in the extension um and I, 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 my attitude would always be that there's no silver bullet, there's no absolute right or wrong when it comes to architecture. Once you have that stimulus, in that case, that uh, request from the, the planners, the question that we then ask is, well, how do we make that the best thing that it can possibly be using that, mm-hmm. that, that steer? And, and that's where we landed. So we did try a lot of exam, uh, of options where it was symmetrical, where it was asymmetrical, how asymmetrical did it need to be uh, until it didn't feel like it was leaning away from the original house, but it didn't feel like it was cramping it either. And that yeah. was that. So we did draw, I don't know, probably 10 or 15 different versions of that front elevation to arrive at the solution as it's uh, been delivered. And how are you doing that? Do you, do you work predominantly Hand, uh, there's a lot of really lovely sketches on your website. Is that your kind of main medium for um, for exploring these kind of ideas? Uh, no, it's not. It's not the the main way. I think uh, it, it. I'm of an age where I straddle um, 3D modelling and hand drawing. Um, so we do a lot of both in the office. So the young younger the younger guys will all make SketchUp models very uh, like remarkably quickly, but my my reticence to use those is always that I think that a project can look complete long before it has any right to. And so I would always then take the raw output of that SketchUp information and bring it into hand drawing to try and animate it and give it a, a humanity um, that I think can be really missing in in hard, hard-edged hard uh, virtual models like, like SketchUp and and the like so so we do we we do both but i would tend to err towards the hand drawing the younger guys in the office would tend towards the modeling we tend to use both um to to arrive at a solution and i'll always try and push people to 
So we give everybody a sketch pad in the office whenever they start, yeah. and we make sure that there's always one sitting next to them so that they they can <laughs> think think with their hand, you know. So yeah, yeah, I like that line that you said. You um, a project can look too complete before it has a right to. Hmm. I'm. I just wanted because it's such a good line. I just want to delve into yeah. that a little bit further by what you mean by that. What, what's what's the issue with a project looking too complete? Well, I, I, I think that when you make a, a, a model in, in CAD or in SketchUp, um, a line has a start point and an end point, and it has a thickness between those two points, and it looks very definite and firm. And, and actually, in terms of allowing a project to, to, to settle into the right form so that it has the right massing and appearance, takes time and it takes iteration and it takes doing things a few times ever so subtly differently until the balance arrives. So um, the, the, the practice that, that Ian and I met at was uh, Elder and Cannon, a, a Glasgow-based firm, and they were really, really good at uh, printing out elevations of projects. Uh, so they do a lot of brick housing association work, varying everything from the floor zones to the panels between the windows by half a brick, a brick course up or down and then pinning 30 of them to the wall and seeing which one looks best just in terms of its solid to void you know the the, the windows and the doors in the elevations uh, and the panels uh, between them uh, and it's very very quick actually as as a as a, a process you start to understand well that one looks much better than these 10 and that one still looks okay so you can narrow it down very quickly just intuitively by by putting them on the wall and standing back, and I think that hand drawing gives that looseness and that that iteration that that process uh, its due diligence to make sure that you arrive at a, a proposal with balance uh, in its in its in its um, facades in its elevations, um, and it's mm -hmm. really really easy if you move straight into CAD not to go through that testing process and to end up with something that doesn't have. An appropriate solid to void, and so we would always try and, as I say, uh, give hand drawing its moment in time at the start of any project. Yeah, and so with that solid to void, then, because we're working here with a with make the maker's house, two very distinct buildings combined together, the mm. new one and and the old one. What what's can you tell me a little bit about the solid to void ratio and what you were exploring when you were doing the new parks? It obviously has a lot more glazing than the Victorian part of the building does it, it, it does so what we looked at uh, with this was um, the height of the pitched roof so whether it should be flatter or, or higher there's uh, a series of concrete coursing uh, and and a vertical section so we looked at the thickness of uh, those those concrete piers and the concrete course that ran that ran along so we tried thinner and and thicker of of, of both of those and there's a dividing section between those two um, uh, those two pieces of sliding glazing on the front elevation and again we tried that as as thicker and thinner within scotland there's uh within the building regulations there's a thing called a notional dwelling which tells you that you can't have too much glazing in any new extension and what that means is that we were having to balance the amount of glazing with the amount of solid knowing that uh, that we had to have a certain thermal performance in the envelope of that new piece of the building. And that was in the back of our minds as we were drawing this as well. And that meant mm -hmm. that we were balancing the amount of glazing that we had on that front elevation with how much solid we had elsewhere within the, within it to make sure that we were always on the right side of this notional dwelling within the Scottish building regulations. 
But again, this goes back to your comment, doesn't it, about constraints and your practice and, and liking to work with things that are a challenge and making them the best they can be. Um, I suppose without some kind of challenge placed like that of whether it's a regulation or not, you probably wouldn't want that much glazing for energy performance. But it's kind of forced you to sort of think of a sculptural form here that works with a with a very good ratio of solid to to glass. And I think that's really helped the design here, hasn't it? Yeah, I, 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 yeah. Well, it's very nice of you to say so, but yes, I, I agree with you, obviously. <laughs> Well, what I find interesting here with the, um, we've got something very clearly new and something very clearly traditional side by side. And the thing that most people will love about Victorian properties are the grand proportions, the really tall ceilings, the big, tall vertical windows allowing light in. And you've almost put the, the total opposite of that on the side, and but achieved the things and the benefits that you get from a Victorian space, but in a different way, in the sense that your extension, what you put on the side, is quite low-lying. It's very horizontal. From the outside, you'd think maybe it's got a very low ceiling, but then you've kind of coupled that with with the vaulted um, aspect. Was that very much what you were kind of aiming for, This to have a slightly different window onto the outside, into these spaces, and have something that's kind of very different to the Victorian windows? Yeah, uh, uh, Janice in particular is a really good gardener, and uh, mm -hmm. f f so I, I love... Victorian architecture but one thing that I wouldn't say it's particularly good at is engaging with the outside um, mm -hmm. it tends to be quite formal in its trappings and there will be a solid door it w wouldn't even be glazed typically up, up here with the driving wind and rain um, and, and so what we wanted to do was to make something uh, you're absolutely right of those proportions but actually that had a fundamentally different relationship with with the outside uh, so it, it took some of that architecture and and blurred the garden in into it. Um, I suspect we'll we'll come on to to talk about this in in due course. But um, the architects that I tend to absolutely love are people like Peter Aldington or Jeffrey Barwa, who have when you look at their plans, it's almost indistinguishable what's inside and outside, um, uh, and and you get this. Uh, uh, as I say, it's like a smudge across across a page of of, um, of of where one ends and the next one begins. Uh, with the Scottish weather, that's not the <laughs> easiest thing to do, but but actually, as a principle of trying to get a, a building that engages with its landscape, it's a really nice idea. And uh, and mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, a lot of our plan drawings have textures on them that will run through so that it tries to introduce that permeability of yeah. uh, of inside and outside. Well, tell me a little bit more about that then. Tell me, talk me through the, the plan of this building, particularly in relation to the, the old and the new as well, yeah. as well as the garden. So the, the Victorian house is, is um, very, I suppose it was very traditional originally. Um, it had already been extended once, so it had an extension in the um, northwestern corner. Um, but as you walked in, there were two rooms on either side of you and a grand staircase in front of you, which, as uh, I've said, w was gone. Um, what we proposed was that the extension connected into one of those original rooms in the ground floor. And, uh, and that then becomes a transitioning space. So as you arrive in the front door, uh, on your left-hand side, 
is a living room and a dining room within the envelope of the existing building. And that dining room uh, runs into the kitchen and then onto a sitting room within the garden. Um, on the left-hand side is a bedroom and a study, Gordon's uh, workspace. Um, and then behind the extension, so wrapped around, uh, effectively, a, it, it's a bit like a cloister, a courtyard, um, is uh, Janice's pottery studio. And then a series of workshop spaces in uh, that, that, that connect onto uh, the garage. Um, Gordon has a, a love of restoring cars, and so that allowed him uh, to, well, effectively it allows all of that to open into that courtyard space. So the pottery studio, the new uh, sitting room and the workshop all open into that courtyard and that that then can become a little active zone outside, mm -hmm. protected from the weather as it is enclosed by the buildings. And so that was, that was um, the, the, that, that's broadly speaking the arrangement of the ground floor plan. Um, uh, and so that that little courtyard is behind the new living space that's that's in the little pyramid that's extension. Right. So that creates this cross aspect. Then, when you're in the living room, you've got the more the sort of grander, more formal, large garden at the front of the property, and then you look into a sort of more secluded courtyard at the back. Is that correct? It, exactly right. Yes, uh, it's it's one thing that I'm desperate to go back. So when we had the photographs of the house taken, it hadn't really bedded in that courtyard. But I mm. know that Janice will have done a pretty incredible job with it. And this idea of having that um, du dual aspect properties are always very beautiful. There's something about being able mm -hmm. to see light and space on both sides of you, uh, especially when it's verdant as well. Uh, that's really very special. And and I I know that sitting in that living room with the wild grass on the on the south on the front elevation, and what I assume is a rather beautiful series of pot plants in the courtyards, activated mm -hmm. by Janice's sculptures is going to be really something you know it's it's really yeah. lovely i mean i do i think it's definitely a missing thing in architecture of projects revisited yeah. they always seem to be captured in time and 10 years later you're still looking back at pictures for with a house particularly of a place that somebody hasn't really moved into yet yeah. um but for some reason it doesn't seem to happen does it the photo shoots that revisit no we so we work a lot with gillian hayes who runs a, a, a um a photographer a dapple photography and uh, mm -hmm. we asked gillian last i think it, it must have been about christmas time um which of our projects would you like to go back and photograph again and uh uh, she said that she'd like to go back to, to this one. But I think it is a thing that, uh, as a practice, we're quite keen to do, is now that we have we have a lot of projects peppered around Scotland uh, and and um, we'd really like to send Gillian back and to set her another project of going to record how these houses are really lived mm -hmm. in. <laughs> so yeah. um, that, that, that is a, a thing that we have in the offing that we'll, we'll do in a few years' time, maybe. Yes. Yeah, we're starting to get to a phase with our projects where because of the length of time we've now been going yeah. we've got some projects that have got new owners and i think that would be the next level of do, revisit <laughs> yes. but with a different how does a different owner adapt to a space that you designed maybe five six years ago yeah um so on this house uh, one thing that really sort of fascinates me about the plan i've got the plan here in front of me is this idea of sequence and journey through the house and as you arrive this front elevation it's quite a grand entrance you, it, you looks like you have to walk quite far to get to the front door yeah you do um, the formal front door and as you're arriving you, you'll see this new extension to the side you can see that something's going on however when you go through the front door it's almost like you wouldn't know it was there 
because you come into this hallway and it's it is just the traditional form it's quite secretive how you go through one room and then we'll have these new spaces revealed is that an intentional thing were you thinking about kind of journey and sequence in terms of movement through the house there's there's a a a romantic answer to this and a and a pragmatic answer and the truth is that both of them came into uh into um our, our heads as we were doing it so the simple answer is yes absolutely we like this idea of a big reveal and i know we talked about that a lot with gordon and janice but there is a there is a more pragmatic side to this as well which is that when we work with existing buildings you do have to work with the grain of them. Um, and the idea that you're going to make big radical alterations is all well and good, but that has a cost associated with it. So actually making sure that you make the openings that uh, and, the, and the incisions in an existing building, which aren't asking too much of the existing structure. I mean, anything's possible with a, the, the right budget, but actually you want to let the money flow into the areas where it's going to make the biggest difference and mm -hmm. and so that was very much in our minds as we dealt with this existing building was that there is a there is a structure and there's an order to the uh, to, to to the rooms we don't want to muck around with that if we don't have to and we can still get a good effect so um as, as you've rightly said what we wanted to make sure was as you moved into that dining room and the extension opens itself up to it that there is a um a Rubicon that you're crossing and all of a sudden you realize that there's this beautiful modern uh, uh, addition onto what is quite a formal set of uh, existing um, mm -hmm. uh, uh, spaces in, in the original building and that that maintains its legibility. I think that's important as well to say that we, um, I, I like uh, architecture that has a legibility to it and, and, and an honesty and I think that that's what we were aspiring to, to, to achieve here. Mm -hmm. I think from a sustainable angle as well, because you're not extending this house, you've added to it. You haven't opened up the sides and made mm. the spaces in the existing house bigger. You've added something new. It's, it's kind of bolt on. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense from a structural point of view and a use of kind of steels. And what what incisions did you actually make then to the main building? R really, really only uh, one one significant one, which was the um, the big slapping uh that that joins the the new kitchen and the dining room together that's the only big hole that we made in the external fabric um there, mm -hmm. there were other li little bits and pieces as well that we did so there was a um the the, the the staircase that goes from first floor up to second floor which has a sort of a, a blue uh surrounds to it uh yeah we we had to make a, a a new incision to to sort of thread that through but again we were very determined that we didn't touch the roof plane there so it was just about uh, timber alterations and knots. Mm -hmm. We weren't introducing steel work. Um, and I think mm -hmm. that's actually the, the dining space was one of those areas that Gordon had drawn something that was very different initially when in, in a reaction to ours that he had wanted to take away quite a lot of that corner. And we had said, well, look, each one of those goalposts that you're making in the external wall of the house is probably 10,000 pounds. So if you yeah. don't need to make two of those, don't and that was one of the areas where we walked back towards where we were and away from where he had been thinking initially um mm -hmm. and it was it was in that budget management process so that's uh, it's interesting so with gordon he was doing drawings that responded to drawings that you were presenting as well y yeah i mean literally we were doing uh you know detail paper overmarks of one another's drawings through this so we would produce something he would draw on top of it it would come back to us we'd draw on it and and that was it was really like um 
yeah, pass the parcel. And then when it got to the point at which we had agreed and that we were both happy with a with a proposal, it was us then that would take that and and uh, and, and literally turn it into a CAD drawing at that point. That was the point at mm-hmm. which it did it, it did get turned into CAD information. So yeah, yeah. And what, were there key turning points or key kind of influence points then from the client point of view, like the design that we're looking at now, that would be that's pure, that's completely because the client sort of suggested a, a total change here? Uh, no, I don't, the, in, in material terms, yes, but I don't think in design terms so much. Uh, so one of the mm. things that we have never used um, uh, in, in material is, is, is precast concrete. Um, we hadn't done mm-hmm. it before. Historically, when uh, Ian and I were at Elder and Canon, they do it quite a lot. So h- historically, I have had some experience of it, but uh, but not as as Lodemon teeth. And it's something that um, I think uh, in, environmentally, I always feel a bit uncomfortable about, uh, honestly. Um, but Gordon, having worked in the Middle East and the Far East, really liked acid etched uh, precasts, wet you know wet wet cast concrete. And and so he was really keen that we did explore that um, for the front elevation, and and we duly did. Um, so there, there's a, a precaster that's based actually fairly close to Lenzi, uh, Pleen, uh, that we that we went to visit, and we took lots and lots of samples of different finishes and uh, colours, pigments that, that that you could put in as as admixtures. And we worked. We took those back to the house, and we sat them in front of the the, the the sandstone. And again, we worked out of the eight or ten that we had, which one best suited the blonde sandstone, and that then became the basis of the of the pigmenting for that for that um, for that concrete. So that's one of those areas that I can say with absolute certainty. Had it not been for having a client who was a designer and being mm-hmm. uh, pretty pretty uh, set on using it, it wouldn't be there were it not 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 for them. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but I, but I like it, and we will use it again. <laughs> it's, uh, <laughs> it's, uh, it, it, it is one of those things that I, I think, as I've said, working with other people that you're willing to listen to, and that you can find an arena in which you bounce ideas off one another. A project ends up richer for it. Um, mm-hmm. You, yeah. But I suppose it, it works very well on that facade when you were mentioning about the roof forms and sort of riffing off the main building um it's quite similar i think with the facade materials as well isn't it if yeah it's kind of looking like sort of forms that are of the victorian but completely different materials with the roof as well maybe talk through a little bit more about the materials then because i think you've mentioned before particularly with interiors that there was a strong influence from the client there yeah um but just if you could sort of run through for anyone that doesn't know the building like what you know what you've used around for this roof and other areas of cladding and yeah. inter- internal materials as well well the the idea of the extension was initially that it was like a shadow of the, of the original building uh, mm-hmm. and and uh, Gordon and Janice when they came to speak to us the, the project the reason why I think they engaged us was a little uh, cottage extension that we had produced up in the Cairngorms called Strone of Glen Banker um, and and that was in black cladding but what um, they were really keen to do. Gordon is being a, he's an incredibly driven individual. He wanted to look at the possibility of burning timber himself and had seen that used, I think in the Far East, they lived in Hong Kong um, and, and he liked that idea. So that was part of the reason why we were brought onto this project, but also something that they were keen to explore themselves. Um, but we also liked the idea of this extension being like a shadow of the house. So it being this, slightly dark slightly 
well, externally dark but bright interior. Uh, so almost like a mm-hmm. subversion, actually, of the original house, you know, which is quite bright on the outside and quite modular on the inside. So there's mm-hmm. this sort of flipping that, that goes on between the two things. Um, so the extension is made of precast concrete and burnt timber. And then on the roof, the pitched sections are formed in uh, standing seam aluminium. Um, we, we wanted to use zinc, but uh, it was a cost saved down to aluminium. So we worked with a really good roofer that helped us come up with the detailing for all of that, including the, the hidden gutters um, that, that exist. Um, and then the flat sections, are, of which there aren't that many, are formed in single ply. Um, uh, it's yeah. only about 10 square metres or so that's, that's, that's uh, flat roof. And big question on the cladding. Did the client burn the timber in the end or was that done by someone else no it was far too much of it so it was done by somebody else so um yeah Uh, and 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 then they pan it on the inside because you're right it's it's from the outside when you see this building it's a surprise when you see the interiors of how bright and and airy they are i really like that that contrast um but the sort of predominant material internally is the the wood that's used on the kitchen and and some of the paneling as well yeah yeah Um, can you tell me a little bit about those we have a kitchen supplier that we've worked with quite a lot called Archispec, who are, are pretty fantastic, I, I would say. And um, at an early stage, as we were looking at the areas that we were making interventions inside the building, uh, so uh, areas like the staircases, both of them, and uh, the panelling of the kitchen, uh, we had an early conversation with Archispec. Um, to see whether we could get a consistent material that they could actually supply uh, to make all of that stuff up and to finish it um, uh, because they have big laminating machines. And, uh, again, it's another thing as a practice we're fascinated by is actually the process by which stuff is made, how it goes together. Mm-hmm. So it's all well and good having a nice idea. If you don't know then how to make it, it's kind of meaningless. You're leaving all that to somebody else to work out. Um, so we really do like getting involved in the detail. And so there were hundreds of details drawn of this project. Um, so I, uh, But that was very much a, a, a collaboration between ourselves and Gordon, who liked the idea of using smoked oak um, for the kitchen and for the staircase. Uh, staircases, plural, um, mm-hmm. uh, and, and Archispec. And the builder, Ian uh, Gilmore, um, uh, who who then was responsible for assembling it all on site. So there is a consistency in the material palette internally. It was driven by the client who would like, who really liked the idea of smoke toke and a supplier of kitchens that we had worked with and thought would do a good job. And um, mm-hmm. I, I, I think we were right. They have done a fantastic job. And did you find it challenging working between two very different spaces? One, that's very much a restoration of an existing house and one that's a very new modern space. Was it important to you to have elements that were consistent that tied them together or, or were you playing off different things in different areas? So I, the, the, the simple answer is no. Uh, the more complicated answer is we have a conservation architect that works with us as a, a as a practice um, for us, um, Ian King. Um, so we're pretty set as a practice that you need to have people in the areas with which they're special. And um, the buildings that I tend to like most are ones where you get something that's obviously old and looked after properly and something that's new and put together properly. 
and it's the dynamism that exists between those elements that that really makes a project special. Um, uh, I'm thinking, you know, Scarpa's Castel Vecchio or the, you know, the, the Neues Museum or, um, mm -hmm. you know, projects like that, uh, Columba, the Columba Museum, um, that I that I think are really, really incredible. And um, so that that what that means is that when we were inserting a staircase, a new staircase in, we did have a discussion. Well, should we put back an original conservation stair or should we put something that actually is legibly new within that? And you then start to understand the layering of history that exists within this house. And and once once we got to the point at which we had concluded that we wanted to put a new staircase in, it then starts to fall into the language of those new objects, the kitchen, the extension. And, and so that, um, and it obviously is legible. You know, I think you, you wouldn't have found a Victorian making floating, floating treads. So. <laughs> yeah. Um, can you tell me a little bit about? You talked right at the beginning about one of the key parts of the brief being that they could separate this house yeah. at a future date. Where where is that line? How would this house then be subdivided um, in the future? Okay. Um, the the dining room would be part of the new build so it, it, it effectively there there would be a single story short uh, horseshoe new which involves the new build and the dining room and the, the the pottery and then the garage and the um the workshop would be converted into bedrooms so you then have this uh west facing horseshoe uh which would be one house one four bedroomed house and then within the original building the front door of the original house would continue to be the front door of another property the living room on the uh, left hand side as you as you enter in would be returned to that property so you would have three spaces in the ground floor the living room the Gordon study and the bedroom and ensuite behind that and then the staircase up would be up to the bedrooms of of a second building uh, which also would have four bedrooms so uh, you would end up with two four bedrooms houses at the end of it so it's very much one's a new build but with a dining room borrowed from the yeah. old building and then one's the original building and which one would the clients keep i'm interested to know i think they'd keep the they, they'd keep the new builds because it, yeah. it, it's it, it it's all on one floor um mm -hmm. one of the things that we were very careful to do because the garage isn't insulated in its slab at the moment is that it is set down so that it could be insulated and the floor level could come up. So you would have a level access house that you could live into in your dotage if you felt so inclined uh, in, in that space. And it's designed very much with that in mind. So this is a project you could be revisiting at some point in the future and adapting your own building to its uh, intended use. It, exactly, yeah. There's a scary prospect. <laughs> Um, so let's talk about the we, we haven't we touched a little bit on the energy efficiency of the building yeah. um, but I think it's a really interesting topic with this one here particularly because of the contrast of old and new yeah. um, but I know you know I've read a few of the things that you've done here in terms of insulating the old building and installing two new heat pumps mm -hmm. uh, maybe if you could tell me just about the challenges of how to adapt the building like this for kind of future use and energy consumption mm. Well, we'd always uh, encourage our clients to take a fabric first approach uh, to any to any projects that, that you take on with an existing building. Um, so with, with, with an old building, um, you would typically uh, have two areas that are or three areas that are really easy to uh, to improve the thermal performance. And those would tend to be the roof, 
uh, the ground floor. Um, not, uh, most of these villas have a suspended timber floor, so it's quite easy to take the floorboards up and suspend insulation under, underneath that. Um, and, uh, and and the windows is is one. So uh, we, on a couple of our projects, we've carried out thermal modelling. Uh, and what it shows is if it doesn't matter what you do on the roof or the floor or the walls, if you don't have a decent set of windows, that's where all the heat's going out of. So um, mm-hmm. fortunately with this project, um, all of the windows were UPVC um, and had reached the end of their life. All of the, the glass was failing. Uh, so what that meant was that actually all of the windows were replaced um, and they were all double glazed. Um, that formed part of the planning application so that there were no hiccups or issues in terms of that, although it meant that we had to submit astragal sizes for, for those windows and, and profiles. Um, and because there had been quite a lot of adaptation within this house, one of the things that we were also able to do, which you're not able to do in most old buildings, is we were able to put some insulation into the external walls. Not in, ev- not in every room, not on every floor, but in the first floor, most of the cornices were gone. So the first floor, there was a layer of insulation put onto the external walls as well. Uh, and it was all sealed and taped properly to try and improve um, some of the airtightness that exists in, in, in old buildings as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that was very much our attitude to the old building was fabric first. And then the new build, as I've already talked on a little bit, because of the amount of glazing that we were putting in, we were having to try and offset a lot of the U-value performances into the walls and the slab and the roof. And so they're incredibly high performing. They're, um, they're uh, yeah, really, I think point one, most of them are on or around that level um, for, mm-hmm. for, for roof and floor and walls. Um, and then once you get to that, there's a question about, well, what should the heat heating system be for this? Um, what we decided on was that there are two air source heat pumps that, that drive this house. And the reason it was done that way was because that allows a potential future subdivision without too much complexity. Yeah. So we did look at putting in um, uh, ground source um, because there is a big garden. It would have been possible to lay horizontal bore pipes. Um, but actually, once we started to talk to suppliers about how you would do that and potentially have two properties feeding off those pipes and potentially separately metered, it just became a bit complicated and, and mm-hmm. we decided that air source heat pumps might be the way to go. So that's, that's, what's, that's what's produced. So, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so looking back on this project, I don't know when this project was completed, how long the clients have, have lived there. It's fuzzy. It's a fuzzy line because of COVID, <laughs> um, as I yeah. think most people w- would have. So um, it, probably autumn last year, Autumn 2020 was was around when it when it was done. In fact, I know that was when it was because um, Gillian just managed to take photographs before the leaves t- uh, turned brown on the on, on the on, on the trees. So um, mm-hmm. so that 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 probably marks the formal end date of it. Yeah. And have you heard much from the clients yet in terms of their experience of living there and their feedback? Yes, uh, I'm pleased to say that. Um, I've seen them quite a few times and that we've had quite a few beers together. So, um, so, and actually I, I'm due to have Christmas drinks with them at some point in the next few weeks. So, um, mm-hmm. so I, I know that they're thoroughly enjoying living in the house and, um, it has transformed the way that they live and that they have felt, uh, particularly through the lockdowns in the last 18 months, uh, incredibly lucky to have had a property 
that gives them the space to the three of them to exist with their dogs, I should say as well, um, mm-hmm. uh, and and to be able to continue to work in relative freedom. So they, I know they feel very lucky and um, happy uh, with mm-hmm. with with how things have turned out. I would have definitely been happy with a ceramic studio. <laughs> Not that I can do it, but I'd have learnt it if I had one. Um, and what what about you? And as a practice, what are you kind of most proud of here with this project? It, it always comes back to, to, to your clients. I, I, I do think it's been transformative for Gordon and Janice. And um, so so many of our projects have bumpy patches through them. You know, be it's no, normally uh, uh, um, either cost or, or uh, the point at which you're having a fight with the planners or a discussion with the planners. Should I should I say? Um, those are the two. Those are the two tricky moments. Um, uh, but actually. Once you come out the other side, the thing that endures is good design, and uh, and that's the thing around which um, friendships are born as well. And I do consider Gordon and Janice friends now, mm-hmm. um, and I, I think that's true of nearly all of our clients. That um, you know they're all on a Christmas card list. Um, <laughs> they're all <laughs> they're all people that I'd happily go and go and sit and catch up with, and uh, and it's it's I hope because of the lasting nature of good design. Yeah, I think also the advantage as well if you're working on houses and your clients are friends is you also know they've got nice houses when you go and visit for dinner and stuff. Yeah. Um, well, I think I think you've done an excellent job um, with this project. And when you were talking about the kind of projects that you like and aspire to, it just seems like this project was the perfect brief for you as well to be able to work with the the old and the new yeah. um, and and merge them together so well and so contrasting. But um, so congratulations on the project. Thanks for sharing your time to talk about it um but now i've got the three questions that i ask all of my guests at the end of the interview um and i'm going to start with um you and your home and what's the one thing that really annoys you in your home um i'm not allowed to say my children um <laughs> no uh so we, mo- we moved in uh, a couple of years ago and uh we haven't made the adaptations that we want to it yet so um there's a list as long as my arm uh, but the one that really really frustrates me is its lack of connection to the garden um it's uh it's really not good enough uh mm-hmm. to be conducive to allowing us all to enjoy the garden what are you going to do about it well, our kitchen is uh, half a story above uh, the garden. So uh, the kitchen is going down to garden level. We're going to cut a big hole inside of the house and put in a piece of sliding glazing. Um, I am tempted then to try and put in a little hidden mezzanine for the children to have a, a, a snug uh, with a nice. hidden staircase up to it. Um, and uh, we're going to make sure that we have a really lovely um, uh, sitting space outside, probably with some heaters in Glasgow. But um, but yeah, um, so that we that we do get to enjoy the garden yeah. uh, directly linked to the kitchen. It sounds great. And then if you could describe one house that you've visited that's really inspired you and tell me why. Turn End by Peter Aldington, um, without a shadow of a doubt, is is that house. Um, I think it's absolutely beautiful um and uh, as i've already touched on its seamless relationship of inside to outside uh, the fact that it's not particularly big but um it, it uh, the the architecture extends to the furniture to the way that uh 
the kitchen is formed out of block work, which sounds horrendous when I say it uh, out loud, but mm -hmm. it's a really beautiful um, uh, project. It's really honestly constructed. You can see how it's made uh, and it's endured. You know, it's what, 50 odd years old now, um, and it's still just an absolute pleasure to see. Um, I haven't been there for mm -hmm. a few years now, but um, but I'll be I'll be going back at some point soon. Okay. And then if you could choose any designer to design you a new home, who would you choose? <laughs> Am I allowed to say Ian Monteith? Um, I, 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 obviously, I'd say Ian. But but if Ian wasn't available, if he was too busy with our, our work, um, does it have to be somebody that's alive? No, no, no. Okay. Um, I, so I, I swithered around Hans Scharoun. I've always loved Hans Scharoun's work. Um, uh, but I would probably go with Peter Womersley. Um, so one of our other projects was uh, to, to restore and adapt a little bit High Sunderland. Um, High Sunderland is the most incredible house I have been in recently. It's just mm -hmm. absolutely beautiful. And um, yeah, I think Peter Womersley. And this is just for sort of context for listeners. This is a project that I think you completed just before this one, but it's a, it's a restoration of um, a kind of mid-century classic, so to speak. It is. Um, I mean, it's one that I'd love to have on the podcast. I haven't had an architect on the podcast twice yet, but that that project definitely because it's so different to to the one we've been talking about today. Yeah. Um, but definitely, I'll provide links anyway to listeners because it's definitely worth exploring your practice, of course, and, and other work. But that project in particular. Yeah. Um, so, having known his work intimately, you choose him to design you a new home. I think that's quite fitting. That house is in, is incredible, and it's one of it. It's still to this day seems utterly surreal that we were selected to to look at it it's it, mm. it, it, it was such a privilege it was a so it's a listed um, uh, it was designed for a famous textile designer Bernard Klein by a famous architect Peter Wormersley and uh, it's an absolute exercise in Miesian planning it's absolutely beautiful mm -hmm. and it, it engages with the landscape you can see how it inspired the textile designer. You can see how it acted as a catalyst for the for the architect for the rest of his work, and it's a beautiful, beautiful home. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We talked at the beginning of this interview about the pressure of working for an architect. Yes. Uh, I imagine the pressure is even bigger working on uh, an architect's great work. Yeah, we 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 agreed uh, with everyone at the outset. So the reason why we were there was because there was a fire. Um, uh, we agreed at the outset that we wouldn't talk about it anywhere, not on our website, not social media, nowhere, until mm -hmm. it was back together and looking good because we knew that there would be a level of hysteria potentially if we couldn't demonstrate that we were treating mm -hmm. the project with the care and attention to detail that it demanded. Well, we'll save that for another interview because <laughs> I'm sure it's a, it's a great story of that project. But um, sure. Matt, thank you very much for giving your time today. It's been great to talk about The Maker's House. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks, George. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you would like to find out more about Lodemont Teeth Architects and their project, The Maker's House, then please visit the website at anotherarchitecturepodcast.com and try out the Instagram page to see the work of all of my guests. If you have enjoyed listening to this episode, then please leave a review, as it's a really helpful way for other people to find the podcast. 
I have previously featured another Scottish house in episode 20 of the podcast, Lower Tullock Grew by Brown and Brown Architects. If you'd like to listen to that episode, you can play it via the episodes link on anotherarchitecturepodcast.com. I look forward to you joining me for the next episode, and thanks again for listening. Thank you.